Artist Uprising. We have started a movement. Call it a revival for arts and entertainment, call it a renaissance or united belief. That creativity should be undoubtedly expressed in a way that shapes culture for the better. That artists should have the resources they need to do the work that runs through their veins. And with the gathering of resources, we will one day abolish the phrase, starving artist. Day and night, the movement does not cease, for creativity never sleeps. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Artist Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Larry G. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to dig into another episode as we listen, learn, and grow. Please make sure to hit that subscribe button now or at the end of this episode. We love bringing on guests with unique stories who are making a splash in the creative world, and today's guest is no different. So let's get right into it as we get to know Robbie Wells. While he never planned it, Robbie Wells is a Dallas-born creative and strategist in some circles who never quite expected to wear the many hats he wears in his day-to-day. Robbie says being classified as a creative is somewhat relative. I find myself in situations where I'm the most creative guy around. Later that day, I am in another meeting and I might as well be a suit. I'm cool with that. It has taken me many, many years to realize I am at my best when I'm supporting the most creative progressive ideas in the room no matter whose ideas they are. After an early start on the business side of the internet, Wells found himself advising big brands on how to use the web for marketing. Ten years ago, and on behalf of one of those big brands, he found himself presenting ideas to Pharrell Williams. While nothing came of the relationship between Pharrell and the big brand, that meeting served as the beginning of an ongoing collaboration between Robbie and Pharrell that's lasted till this day. Among his many roles, Robbie is a longtime employee of I Am Mother, Pharrell's creative collective that works across music, film, television, fashion, health and wellness, and events. After wearing a number of hats at I Am Mother, Robbie has settled into a marketing strategy role across Pharrell-owned businesses and serves as executive producer of Pharrell's groundbreaking culture and community festival, Something in the Water, in Virginia Beach. About two years ago, He launched Music.com and is working to reignite a rich culture of storytelling that celebrates the inspiration and motivation of musicians. And last but not least, Robbie is business director of Works, a design and culture obsessed creative consultancy whose clients include Nike, Kanye West, Peloton, Beyonce, Fear of God, Kit, John Elliott, and more. Robbie, how are you doing tonight, man? I am doing wonderful. How, wonderful. How is uh, the East Coast out there? The East Coast is nice. I have to say, it is not a bad place to be quarantined if, if you're uh, quarantining. Yeah, nice place to be. I have to say. What's the weather like out there? Horrible though. Horrible today. <laughs> really? It's, it's hit or miss. Yeah, absolutely. It is rain all day long. However, uh, when it's nice, it is really nice. Really nice. I'm about a block away from a beach, and I think that makes the weather a little sketchy. You know, it's just hard to predict. But when it's good, it's good, though. Yes. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I just just wanted to tell you, uh, thank you for being a part of the podcast today. Uh, This is something we've been looking forward to over the past few weeks, you know, setting it up and getting it together. Obviously, you and I have known each other for quite some time. When did we actually meet? Do you remember that? 
that is a good question. I think we met at a chili cook-off. Okay. Remember that company? Yes. I think it's called Janimation. Yes. I don't want to say the wrong name. I think it's yes. Janimation, but they would do this cook-off, and we had just opened an office in Dallas. Right. The agency I was at previously. I remember and going. they invited us. Yes. I remember that, and I remember going to, I think it was a holiday party of yours. <laughs> Oh yeah! Oh yeah! That was fun. We that, first of all, that space we had on commerce was amazing. Amazing and yeah. great, great for entertaining. Yeah, and then and it's funny though, but I do remember. I remember seeing you. I think at an art con, um, certainly at the holiday party, the chili cookoff, and I would say that's a pretty random smattering of places <laughs> to, to have just run into people over the years. Right. Um, <laughs> Anyways, man, I I wanted you on on the podcast just because of, you know, who you are, what you do. Um, if you can, I'd love to get um, my listeners just a kind of backstory as to yourself and like where you're from. And, and you know, like I know you've, you're from Dallas, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your backstory. Yeah. So um, born in Dallas, Baylor Hospital. Nice. Um, that is legit right there. <laughs> straight up. Yeah. I've been, been hanging out down there for a long time. No, uh, born in Dallas um, and, and grew up the first five years of my life in Dallas. My parents, family, as far as the eye can see backwards, are from Dallas. And uh, so very quickly in 1980, to let's go ahead and date myself. Um, <laughs> It, you know, born in 1975, and in at 1980, my parents, who were in the retail women's shoe business, they had a shoe store. Wow. Um, said we need to move out to Midland, Texas, because there's a lot of wealthy women out there spending a lot of money on shoes. So we packed up the family, moved to Midland, Texas, which at the time probably a city of. 80,000 people that was doing really well because of the oil boom at the time. In the yeah. 80s. Yes. And that's where we posted up. And it was, Midland was interesting because it was, um, first of all, like my first real experience outside of Dallas, mm-hmm. but it was a small town. It was the eighties. It was like the height of Friday night lights and that kind of high school football scene, which I'm sure still thrives today there. But, totally. um, we were there during that time and it was just like, good, wholesome, easygoing, fun. But what was unique to me and my experience um, at the time was that all my family was from Dallas, but my immediate family, which is me, my mom, my dad, and my younger brother moved out to Midland. We didn't have anybody. We didn't know anybody. So we had to make friends. And we got really tight as a family. So in a way, I, I attribute that time in Midland to like incredible family bonding. And a lot of it was over pop culture, which interestingly is where I spend a lot of time these days. So, so cool. um, work-wise. Yeah. Yeah. My, I like to joke. It's not even a joke, but I tell people this all the time. My mom was like, my bedroom was covered, covered in rock posters. And she yes. would do funny things and she would like cut them out and then put construction paper borders around it. So it was like posters like, done like, <laughs> artistically and creatively. Nice. But it was everyone. It was like Duran Duran, Michael Jackson, you know, all these bands that I still love in many ways, but they death leopard like covered my room. And I was just kind of immersed in that, in the, 
music side of things from a very early age, but not as musicians. No one in my family were musicians. We were just big fans of music. I remember when John Lennon died, which I think the anniversary was just recently. Yeah, and, uh, it was last week. I remember being, I think I was five years old, and my whole family on their knees in front of one of those big-ass televisions um, crying. And me looking at my mom and dad, like, what's going on? What's going on? And they were explaining to me that John Lennon died. Like, these are interesting moments that just happen whenever you're out in the middle of nowhere, like we were. All we have are those kind of things to bond over. So Midland was great. But Midland was interesting, too, in that it was without a doubt, like a solid <laughs> like three to four years behind the big city. <laughs> so I had right. cousins. <laughs> I had cousins that would give me their cool shit and stuff, and I would wear them and get made fun of all the time. Oh. Um, and, then, and then we ended up moving to Houston briefly uh, after being in Midland for eight years. We moved to, I like to say, we kind of made a mistake of moving to a neighborhood we didn't really belong in, and that I think it was probably. A li- you know, the kids were a little better off than we were, had nicer things. Like, they were rocking Jordan 2s, and we were still in Converse, and I had, like, a chili bowl haircut, which was ridiculed <laughs> to no end. And I, I'm guilty of the that, right too. <laughs> I didn't have the right jacket, didn't have the right shoes, and my parents, thankfully, hated it, too, and they said, we got to get back to Dallas. And that brought me back, like, in middle school and, and where I was at until roughly 30-ish when I moved to New York. But I love Dallas. I have the fondest memories of it as a kid. Being away from it, I think, in Midland, where all my when all my family was in Dallas, yeah, um, always meant it held a very special place in my heart. You know, like I can remember the way the grass felt in Dallas because in Midland it was a little bit different, different types of grass and different types of trees and things like that. So... Like I, I have maybe an outsized or disproportionate love for, for Dallas just because of those moments as I was a kid. But it was really nice to finally get back to Dallas. Do you do you finish feel, out high school and everything else? Do you feel like your time in Dallas specifically, saying from high school to like college, was that your formidable years when it comes to the whole creative side, which what you work on, you know, can, right now as far as your, you know, what you do. I would say yes, um, without a doubt. And a lot of that stems from being a skateboarder and just all this baked into skateboarding in general, which is a huge amount of creativity, um, a lot of DIY, a lot of, um, you know, if you can't, if you can't go to it or you can't buy it, you got to make it mentality. Um, which, you know, all came from skateboarding, which came from Dallas and came from, that time in my life. Um, but it also, I think, I don't know. I think there's something about even the world of skateboarding that just makes you a seeker of things and just curious and how things came to be. And, and therefore by associations of kind of watching for trends and movements and things in culture that you want to understand why they're happening. And a lot of that kind of stuff, I think, informs my creative work, my creativity. Even though I think, for me, it actually started with the business side of creativity before it got to be quite as maybe creative as it is now, I guess. Did you... A a rambling answer, but no. it all comes back to skateboarding. So some, some of, a lot of that, then, basically, is what you're saying, had a lot to do with you eventually getting into this. 
as far as like what you do now or what what did you study in college like what was what were you like what did you major in yeah so i majored in marketing um it i went to brookhaven community college for three years proudly i loved it (laughs) (laughs) i think you're supposed to go there for one to two yeah um I figured out a way to go there for three before I eventually went to North Texas. And I think by the time I got my degree, it was about a seven year attempt at college. And I never, never skipped a semester or anything. I just kind of took my own pace. But uh, yeah, in college it was marketing, but it was truly because I was super, super entrepreneurial as a kid. I had all sorts of creative little businesses and um, try to get things patented, go through that process. And this was all like as a late teenager. Um, and to me, if I was going to go to college, marketing seemed to be the thing that would keep my interest the most. So that's what I ended up getting a degree in was marketing. And did you go right into to that field as far as after finishing college? Um, I Actually, I was deep into my career by the time I finished college. So that also led to, um, I wouldn't say deep, that's just a relative term. (laughs) Now I'm deep into it. Um, But at the time, you know, I I had a great job because I was kind of a product of the first wave of the internet. I built websites for a job at one point in time, which then parlayed into a number of different jobs that I can pinpoint exactly how that moment led to where I'm at now, but very early on on the internet and, you know, I had a, a company where I sold car parts over the internet for many years in college, Whoa. paid for a chunk of my college. And this is part of that whole DIY other, thing, huh? Yeah, I think so. I think so because I had, you know, aside from having to hire some even younger kids to build a website for me and that sort of thing. We, um, uh, yeah, that was, that was a big part of me going like, all right, I need to figure out how to do this myself. I can't keep paying people to build my website. And I had a little bit of that creative bug where I was watching really stuff, really cool stuff be done online. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to try to learn how to do that. So I taught myself how to code and do graphics and, and, and managed our own website. I had a partner, still one of my best friends to this day. Um, we had this apartment in Denton where we sold car parts for Hondas and Acuras and Nissans out of this apartment <laughs> over the internet. We had wow. customers all over the world. Wow. And, uh, but that's how I, like, I was doing marketing in school to learn how to do better at that. But it was what was abundantly clear is that the stuff I was learning was not even addressing the existence of the internet. You know, it was just a little behind. So, but I was able to take that job and, or that, that experience working on my own website. I eventually found a, um, I needed a new host. I needed someone to host my website. And I found this woman who um, was offering web hosting. And she said, can you tell me how much traffic your site gets? And I said, you know what? That's partly why I want to work with you because I have no idea. I need someone to like run data, kind of back end data on the website. And she goes, well, how many people come? I go, well, all I know is I get about anywhere from, you know, 175 to 250 emails a day asking for leads and she's like oh my gosh what are you doing to get that and i explained to her about the early internet marketing that i was doing to get that traffic and she said can you come help my clients i have about 150 clients that i've been selling a marketing service to they're a little bit unhappy um but can you come kind of one by one start helping them out and i said after school and i said yeah sure so 
I, my girlfriend at the time, college girlfriend at the time, would drive me from Denton to like 6.35 in Preston every day after school. And I would do, yeah, meet these business owners who were all a little bit angry, but over time became really happy. Still friends with many, many of those. But that experience and doing that work um, just led to the next job at a bigger kind of internet agency which then led to the next job, which then led to the next. So you were kind of like uh, learning all but, of, you were learning all of this stuff, like before it became knowledge to people about this is how you find out the information in order to do, you were kind of like finding out everything on the fly. Yeah, you kind of had to back then. Um, there was very little resources. It also makes you a little bit of an oddball because by the time I, um, you know, I worked with that woman. That company was bought and I went to a bigger company. And eventually I went uh, on my own for a few years. And when it came time to get a job again, because being on my own was sketchy and it was a, and this was now in the early 2000s, um, I took a job at a, at a, a big and local big internet um, marketing company or agency called IMC Squared, which was kind of an institution for a while. And when I started there, they were like, we don't even really know what job to give you because you do a little bit of everything. And that's back to that kind of DIY attitude, I think. Yeah. And I, I said, you know what? I just need the money. Give me a job. And I got in there and very quickly did well and um, had a really, really good run working at that agency, which led me to moving to New York and working for yet another bigger agency. Um, so it all kind of, Right, you know, traps off each other. All along the way, though, always kind of having this blend of understanding the business side of things, but also having a deep respect for the creative side. Where even when I wasn't doing the hands-on creative work, I befriended and certainly, I think, earned the respect of the people who were doing that creative work, just because I was looking after them. You know. Yeah. Um. You know, in your bio, <clears throat> which, by the way, is. I mean, it's pretty amazing <laughs> just reading and uh, seeing everything that, you know, you've got going on and what you've done. You know, there's a line uh, there where it says, you know, you say it took you many years to realize that you're at your best when you're supporting the most creative, progressive ideas in the room, no matter who those ideas are. Um, in that span of time, what would you say has been your biggest shift or change about you and how did you get to that point? Uh, okay, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know what, it, it, for me, it boils down to the self-awareness that just comes over time, right? The self-awareness of who you are and what you can do, and where you can add value. Um, I, it's it's kind of cliche to say, but and, and I'm sure you've experienced something similar to this, but you know, there's certain rooms where I'll walk in and I'll be the most creative guy in the room by a mile, right? Oh, you're so creative. You're almost weird. You're so creative. And then there's other rooms that I'll find myself in where <laughs> I may as well be wearing a suit. I look right. so uncreative or, or so corporate, right? So, it, and another, you know, I used to say that about hipsters, right? Like in some <laughs> weird world, I'm a hipster. In other words, yeah. <laughs> I'm not even close to one. But I do think it applies to the, the creative mindset as well. And, it, and you know, hopefully it's not limiting to people who feel creative and then they find themselves in certain rooms where they're like, oh, I can't be creative right now because this guy is clearly more creative than me. Did it, it actually happens to me all the time at work, right? Like when you, if you're in a, you know, in a, a meeting with Pharrell, 
he's definitely the most creative guy and you have to kind of just acknowledge the fact that no one's looking at you for your creativity in that situation. Right. Um, but all that said, you want to find the value that you add, right? And and for me, and kind of understanding that sometimes, yes, I, I have to or we collectively have to be the creative one. And other times we have to be there to support the creative. Um, and understanding that balance or that nuance and how you can shift between those things is something that just simply came with age and time and probably being thrusted in a bunch of really interesting rooms with interesting people. Um, but I think where, where as a young person, I probably failed and I suspect other youthful creatives may, um, find, you know, find themselves in challenging moments when they either aren't willing to adapt to the room or they, or they are just trying to be this kind of singular entity. And I don't think we live in a world where that really exists that much in any kind of feasible way. Right. Um, I, I can only imagine if you're one of the highest, I've actually, I mean, I, I probably have seen it at times in rooms where someone who I thought was super creative was in a room with someone else I thought was creative, that you could see that kind of mutual respect and like, Hey, I'm going to defer to this guy. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where, you know, so much of even even what artist uprising does and this idea of just trying to enable creatives to to make a living and, and do what they do i think you're you can be an ally anyone can be an ally you can be a creative or you can be an ally in any situation and that's just Without once i figured that out for myself i've found everything to be quite fulfilling and actually way less stressful um as long as you can find that way to add value I like I, I like how you said it's taken you many many years because as you're speaking right now I'm like is this is exactly how I feel about certain things because when I was younger and up in the game it was like I always thought you know my ideas were the freshest and the best and I would have a hard time conforming when there would be someone else on that other end that had something that honestly I knew deep down was better <laughs> but yet you're still <laughs> yeah. trying to hold on and be like you know Whereas now I'm kind of, I take a back seat. I'm a bit, I'm a bit more, I, I observe the room, I read the room and, uh, you know, basically let the energies for themselves, you know, speak. And it becomes a lot clearer as to how, how to move and when to talk and when not to. Yeah. Yeah. Cause most I mean, frequently when creatives are gathering, there's almost always a challenge, right. Or a problem to solve. Yeah, And you can spend time battling out like my idea versus your idea, or you can adapt to the situation and, and pursue the one that seems to have the most energy and, and hits on all the right chords. And I think, you know, it, it's funny. I, <clears throat> I, <laughs> there's, there's times where like in a room full of great designers, you don't want me to do the logo. <laughs> but there are other times where hey, I may be the best option we have going, um, and, and and that's just bringing perspective. And I can I can even give you examples of like weird weird situations, right? Where there's really really creative people in the room, but some skill that you bring makes you um, makes you stand out. And this is a classic. You being from Texas, me both us both being from Texas, uh, this this has some relevance on that on that level. But when I moved to New York. I, uh, one of my clients in New York was Estee Lauder. Okay. And in particular, they're like, their fragrance business and their uh, men's beauty and skincare business, excuse me. And, um, 
so they also happen to own the license for a handful of different fashion house, fashion designers, stuff like Michael Kors and Tom Ford and Sean John. So yeah. they own those licenses. They, they're responsible for that marketing. And we were one of the agencies that helped bring those products to market. And, and most of them, we had kind of a rhythm, right? Where I would, I was there from the beginning to get very involved and talk about what we were going to do in this case in the digital space to bring these products to life and the content we were going to create and what it would look like and feel like. And it was always derived from pretty strong brand presence of these fashion brands. And, um, and in the case of Michael Kors, for whatever reason, we were presenting these ideas, presenting these ideas, and they were loving it. We love it. We love it. I'm like, okay, well, at some point, we have to actually present to Michael Kors' team. And and that's what the norm was on all those other brands. And they were like, yeah, no, no, no. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Like, okay, okay. And and then finally, like, we're at the last, like, you know, it's a goal line with this. And it's time to present to Michael. And all of a sudden, they're like, all right, Robbie, you're going to present. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> I, I would have really appreciated all the practice, like, going through the ranks of his team, getting to the big show with Michael. And they're like, oh, no, we did all that. We just need you to present to Michael. I'm like, what are you talking? Like, why? <laughs> this is not the norm. No. And they're like, it's your Texas accent. We think it's going to be disarming. And he's going to appreciate you saying everything that you can say you know, this is their words, not mine, is like intelligently as I say it, but saying it with the accent that I have will be disarming and he won't be put off by it and then we'll sell it all in. And I was like, oh my God, this is the weirdest thing. So there's once again, like kind of knowing your role in the room. And we did the presentation. It went beautifully. I I maybe had a little bit of a Southern draw that day. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it ended up uh, it ended up working beautifully, but that's just another example of like kind of knowing your role in the room and where you can add value, even if you don't never saw it coming. Which in that case, I absolutely never saw that one coming. Well, um, you mentioned something. Um, I think it was in that just just in the last question um, about Pharrell, and you know this question mm-hmm. was coming because obviously you work for him, so I've got to ask. Can you tell me about your first meeting with him and what eventually uh, led to you working for I Am Mother? Yeah, of course, of course. So um, I was a dude from Texas who was already a huge Pharrell fan, get a chance to, to meet him and work for him. So I, um, when I lived in New York, I found myself moving out of the digital marketing kind of realm, which is what got me to New York. Yeah. And started working in a different sliver corner of the marketing world, which is all about tapping into entertainment on behalf of brands, um, tapping into pop culture. So this is the corner of marketing that does celebrity endorsements, that does partnerships with music releases or does partnerships with movies that are coming out. When you see, Oh, Taco Bell and you know, whatever transformers do a deal. It's like that kind of work. But my job is always a strategist to figure out like who are the right people for the right brand and always representing the brand. And one of my longtime clients from all the way back in Dallas was Procter and Gamble, big, big CPG company, consumer right. package for the company. They, um, they had asked to meet with Pharrell. They had just bought the brand art of shaving and, uh, they were 
wanting to kind of PNGify it, if you will, and bring it into the PNG fold and, and do what PNG does so well. But it was a lifestyle brand, a grooming brand, and they wanted to meet with Pharrell. And our, that's what our company did, was pair these people up, even though I did not know him at all. I'd never met him before. Right. Um, we, we knew how to get to him, so we set up a meeting. And I don't even know if I would necessarily need to have been at this meeting. However, um, believe it or not, at this time, which was like 2010, yeah. At this, at my company, I knew more about him than anybody. Okay. So my colleagues were like, you got to come. And we know you're a big fan, but you got to come to this meeting. I'm like, okay, cool. And I told him, I go, look, he's not going to be like the others. He's not going to be like a lot of the people we meet with and talk to. He's very hands-on, very, very savvy, very smart about brands. Like you can't, you know, put words in his mouth. Like he's going to know, he's gonna, we got to let him talk. And our friend from TNG spoke about artist shaving and this brand. And then Pharrell goes, thank you, as he always does, and just started kicking so much incredible knowledge. <laughs> 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 he's like, he's like, I have, I have stores around the world. And um, so I understand the retail experience and we do, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he just went on and on. And I looked at the room and there wasn't many of us. We were in the, small studio in Los Angeles music studio and my colleagues jaws were just slowly dropping like who is this guy so sharp and when right. we came out of that meeting we we were not in the business of being in the, the talent business right that's not what we do we represent brands and it's important to draw that distinction but my my boss at the time and the CEO of the company and in that meeting he was like he goes we gotta stay in touch with that dude like there's something there we gotta stay in touch with them and I was kind of made the point person to stay in touch with him. And right. in that meeting, I probably did not impress upon Pharrell too much, to be honest. Like it, there was a lot of conversation and I was probably shy and scared and starstruck and everything else. But um, then rushed into a situation that was amazing. So that CEO had this idea that he was like, Robbie, I want to pitch Pharrell this idea. Go down to, Miami where he lives and present it to him. I got it all lined up. I'm like, okay. Um, so I get on a plane and, Oh, I have to back up my, <laughs> my boss who I love this guy. His idea was a little bit clunky. Let's just say. And I was the one that had to go present it. So I'm like, Oh hell no. I'm redoing this entire presentation top to bottom. Like I get the idea, but I'm going to write it the way I can deliver it. So it stayed up all night long this amazing presentation to Pharrell, use all this imagery that I thought would speak to him, use language I thought would speak to him, and went to his house in his kitchen, presented to him on his computer in his in his kitchen. No um, way. Idea. For real? Yeah. And while yeah, for real. And while the idea in while it looked pretty, because <laughs> it did a nice presentation for it. Yeah. It was still a clunker, but Pharrell was like I like this idea, but I really like the way you present and I could use your help. And that started oh. what was essentially oh. him oh. hitting me up from time to time. Just you get like a, a random phone call on a Friday night or Saturday and it would say Pharrell and he would say, I have an idea. I need you to do a deck for me. And the, and the origins of that, like, it, it's actually, it's really, really interesting because I can, it still plays itself out all the time. Yeah, when he he does a lot of work with brands, you know, and I think he's gotten better, and I think brands have gotten better over the last decade. But when 
you know, when he would go sit at a, a boardroom table in an office of a big corporation, he would have marketing people flanking each side of that boardroom table. He would say his idea, right? He would say, this is what I think we should do. We should do this, this, and this, and this. And they all nod politely. They're like, yes, this is cool. This is cool. And in that situation, they, of course, have their own agenda. They're trying to hire Pharrell, but Pharrell has his own ideas. And he would say, like, every time I would have those meetings, I would leave. We'd come back three weeks later, and they would regurgitate that idea. And it was like it went through the telephone game. It was now wildly different Mm. and not near as interesting. He's like, what you can do is help me author that idea from the jump and make it undeniably viable from the second I present it. And just doing what a general strategic agency type guy would do is like, here's some things going on with consumers. Here's some stuff going on with in the category. Here's some stuff going on in culture. And here's the best idea in the world. And when he delivers it, I agree. It's kind of undeniably viable. You can't shoot it down. And that became the origins of our working relationship. I would just do this for him uh, behind the scenes. I still had a day job. I would help him on various things, including the creation of I Am Other. So he called me with a, this idea for I Am Other now going back 10 years ago, mm. um, plus maybe, and explained why he wanted to do it. We, um, at the time, there was a catalyst in that Google had just bought YouTube. And they were hiring or doing deals with interesting people to create premium content for for um, YouTube. Yeah. And if you had the right ideas, they would give you money. Like Ashton Kutcher was one of them. And he started something back then, like his digital content stuff. And there was one called Awesomeness TV that was born out of this. And so was I Am Other in a way. Because we put together all the language around what I am other stood for, why it needed to exist and what was going on in the world that made it relevant. And it was epic and long and lots of great images and words. And then it ended with like, here's six or seven shows that we'd like to go make. And that was the pitch to Google. And they said, yes. And that was the origins of I am other. Except the whole time I had a day job, a pretty good one. And, um, Pharrell went off and, and brought on some team members, many of which are still on the team today. Mm-hmm. And uh, they went and created all that content. Like like Nardwar, you know Nardwar, the oh, yeah. journalist who's amazing. Like he had a show on there. I've seen Awkward, his interview with Black Pharrell, Girl. actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, the show Insecure, which before it was Insecure on HBO, was Awkward Black Girl, which season two of it lived on iMother's YouTube channel. Okay. Um, there's some really, really great stuff done back Love then as part show. of that, but it was the, it was the origins of I Am Other, which, you know, started with this digital content. And while most people were moving from traditional forms of content to digital, I Am Other got, to, you know, was emboldened by their work on digital content and then started making movies and they made the movie Dope. Bro, Mimi, his production partner, one of my colleagues, made the movie Dope, which I think was 2015, and then they made Hidden Figures, a film called Roxanne, Roxanne. Yeah. And just got into this rhythm of making movies and TV. So most, <laughs> I feel like everyone else was like, how do I do a lot of stuff in digital? And we kind of had the opposite. Like, how do we just make bigger and bigger things? That's um, and by that, you know, I, I ended up joining in 2015. and uh, Officially. I think it was 2015. So yeah, you- yeah, I ended up, yeah. You were yeah, you were helping him. Ever. 
you were helping him out and then eventually it became official. Yeah. And I, and actually this is a good story for creatives, right? Like yeah. I was helping him out and he always offered to pay and I always said no. And there was a time when I first started working for him where I was really self-conscious about this idea of like working for an individual and he was paying me, but I hadn't produced anything yet. Right. And I'm like, man, I'm like three or four months in here and nothing's really popped yet. If he's paying me and I felt this like overwhelming sense of guilt. Um, and I told him, I go, dude, I'm struggling, man. I'm really struggling. I've never worked anywhere where I felt like my value wasn't immediate. Um, or it wasn't clear that I was making a difference right away. Yeah. And he goes, dude, you paid for yourself years ago. Don't even think about it. And I'm like, oh, and then that I can finally is, be free. That is <clears throat> it right there. That right there, man. Wow. That is, that's yeah. crazy. That was a real choice. I remember them, him and his lawyer, like, all right, we, you know, we're about to do some serious work for us. We need to do a contract. I'm like, I'll do a contract with you. I'm like, and I'm not going to. I bet the contract said I'm not supposed to tell that story, but I did. Um, <laughs> <ten years. laughs> <It's okay. laughs> but the other thing that contract said was that they were going to pay me money. And I said, no, I said, yeah. And I think it was a good idea. You know, and, and now you're, you're working on the marketing strategy side of his businesses. And um, can you give me an idea? That's what you do primarily now, correct? Yeah. It's kind of evolved to that. When I first, first started working for Iron Mother Mind, my role was kind of twofold. One, in the instance that someone wanted to create a new business with Pharrell, or if we wanted to, as I'm other, create a new business, I played a role early on in trying to shape like what that business plan or vision was, get it documented, engage partners to make it happen. And so th- that would be, I would consider business development. That, that language or that title means different things in different places, but business development, creating a new business early stage. Um, and then he had a lot of brand relationships and that was my background. I was pairing talent like Pharrell with brands. So it was like, all right, here, I have a lot of experience doing that, done some big projects and big deals. I can help there. And then the part that was most exciting to me is that I and mother had come to stand for something in the world. Um, like we created things that were shining a light on others, you know, like holding others up in the highest regard. Like it was um, giving people platforms and stuff like that, like telling stories that needed to be told by hidden figures or others. And I'm like, that is something that brands want to have a little bit of, if you can bottle it up. And how could we go start coaching brands, consulting with brands to be more other, right? To address quote unquote others differently and so we started doing that so we started working with southwest airlines we did work with bmw with airbnb with at&t with mtv started almost we were an agency although we never really came out as an agency it was all just through relationships and and pharrell would lend a little bit of advice or guidance on the creative or strategic side and then me and a small team of people would go execute and for the most part that particular skill set, we've now decided to just focus on Pharrell's own businesses because he now has a skincare line that we just launched. He has a number of nonprofits. Um, he you know, has a thriving business with Adidas 
that, you know, in order to do things oh, yeah. the way he or we like to do things, yeah. we have to be very hands-on. And so it, it's now taken a more internal focus. Um, and, and there's actually just more people. So even that business development side, we have other people that can help with that sort of work. I'm still frequently the kind of story person or deck builder, like with the festival or with, um, you know, these nonprofits, these creators, even human rights, the skincare line, get in and help with the story of these things um, from a marketing standpoint, but frequently someone else is running it. I'd play a big role in the festival, but I'd play a tiny role on skincare, for example. Yeah. And so like with the, uh, with the festival, how did that come about? Um, you know, like, was that an idea that he had brought to you or vice versa? And, um, you know, just let me know about that first year, how, how, you know, how it went for you guys. Yeah. So it was without a doubt in every way, shape or form, a big career highlight, certainly for someone who never in a million years envisioned myself as even having anything to do with a music festival. Yeah. It's never, it's never on the radar for me professionally, personally. Um, but what ended up happening is that we, um, you know, Pharrell has a number of endeavors here in Virginia Beach, which is his hometown. And one one of those is a real estate endeavor. And that because it is real estate and it's within the city, you have to spend time kind of uh, partnering with, working with, um, helping the city, the city leadership understand your plans, et cetera. So in a meeting with um, the city council and the mayor of Virginia Beach and the police chief even, the the question came up about this weekend. Um, they call it College Beach Weekend here in Virginia Beach. It's the 17th week of the year every year. And it's when all these HBCU students from uh, around the area, the East Coast, all convene, converge on Virginia Beach, almost like spring break, except it's a little bit later than spring break. It's right. actually closer to finals. So they all come, all the kids come. And then you have the local kids come and everyone gathers on the beach and the nightclubs and everywhere. And inevitably some kind of trouble goes down. Um, and it's unfortunate, right? There's just, you know, fights or someone shoots a gun. Someone mm. hopefully does not get shot, but just trouble breaks out. And the city is not sanctioned by the city. The city doesn't even really approve of it. Um, they're like, for real, what could we do to like, just get everyone to, to be cool, <laughs> you know, and not cause trouble. And, and I think they would have been happy if he would have done like a PSA, you know, just like some sort of video, which he would have never in a million years done. Yeah. But, you know, he took it in and he said, okay, like, we'll, we'll think about this. We'll think about this. And he came back to California, which at this point I was now in California and he was living in California. Most of the team was in California. And he's like, all right, I was presented with this opportunity, this challenge. And here's what I think we need to do. I think we need to do a festival right on top of this weekend. Mm. And some people are like, Oh, sounds like you may be throwing fuel on the fire here. You know, you're going to bring more people in and hip hop music and, you know, all like all the kind of cliche things to say. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. This is like stroke of brilliance for sure. It's like, these are college students. They are on an upward trajectory in life, right? They're, about to graduate, they're going to choose a city to live, they're going to choose a job, and we're basically telling them, don't come to Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach is off limits. You're not wanted here. He's like, no, no, no. We need to harness the potential of these young people. We need to shine a bright, positive light on Virginia Beach 
and at the same time uh, give them something to do. They just need an agenda because everyone was just coming and hanging out on the boardwalk or hanging out on Atlantic Avenue, which is a big thoroughfare along the beach. And um, so we then packaged up a pitch. We flew back to Virginia Beach and presented it to the city leadership and said, you asked for a solution. Here's what we think the, the solution is. And they bought it. They totally bought it. Like I'm sure there was some skepticism, but I happened to be in the room when that was pitched. And from that moment on, I got sucked into the vortex planning <laughs> a festival. And yeah, and being in, in many ways, I guess the spokesperson for the festival, but also kind of applying my marketing, branding, etc. to the festival. We had you know, Live Nation as a partner on it, so of course it's going to be airtight from a production standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but with regards to the story of the festival and why it exists, that's um, a big part, big role that I play. Just making sure that story's heard loud and clear and that people understand that it's more than just a music festival. Um, I also do all the sponsorship sales for the festival, which I'm not a salesperson by any stretch, but really my job is just to endear this festival and its mission to um, to brands that want to be a part of it. And we absolutely crushed it um, to the point where another one of our partners at, um, at William Morris yeah. <laughs> Endeavor, big music or big talent or talent agency. Mm-hmm. They, uh, I remember in a meeting we were doing budget planning and there was like our live nation partners in there. Our, I and other, my colleagues were in there and um, William Morris was in there not literally, but um, a gentleman from William Moore. Yeah. <laughs> and on the budget spreadsheet, it said, what, what are we going to put in here for sponsorship? How much sponsorship are we going to get? And we, the Live Nation got generously, generously to put um, $150,000 in sponsorship there. Mm. And the William Morris guy said, make that number a zero. You're not going to get a single sponsor a single sponsor in Virginia Beach, Virginia. No one cares about Virginia Beach, Virginia. And what they didn't know is I had already at that point lined up two and a half million and ended up getting another million and a half on top of that. Wow. And he was like, how are you doing? How are you doing it? And I said, look, I I said, I've never worked on a festival before, but I can only suspect that you go pitch a tent out in the desert and try to tell brands that it's the coolest tent ever and they need to be associated with this tent because it's so cool. And I said, I sell my festival. I said, you sell a festival like Dell sells a computer. Yeah. Right. Here's all the specs. I sell the festival like Apple sells a computer. Like we're going to change the world with this festival. Amazing. And, and it works beautifully and it works year two even great more beautifully. Um, but yeah, so now I'm somehow in the festival side of things and it's actually incredibly enlightening but so the results of this so we do it and we, we pull it off miraculously we had 13 weeks to execute it um which i think by festival standards is tiny and but we didn't know any different we were beautifully naive we like to say and um it ended up being the impact it had on the city everything pharrell predicted by right? like these brands need to show up for these young people you, you know when you know, if they see an Apple logo or a Verizon logo and, and they they feel like they're showing up for them because they're the attendees of this festival. Yeah. Um, it And then it turned the page in this, you know, I, I guess I'd probably downplay a little bit of the 
the racist kind of, you know, uh, powder keg that was going on with the city, the, you know, the, the people did not like this weekend, hated that it happened. Lots of kind of, ne- lots of negativity, you know, unspoken and sometimes spoken racism. But after it happened, it was, we had people telling us, people of color telling us, like, you just turned the page in the history books of the city. And so Amazing. now that I live here, I can actually see it and feel it and feel like the, the hope and optimism and positivity that the festival has brought to so many people. And it's, that's why it's a career highlight more than anything. It's just the, um, the feedback. It's, it's wild. It is wild. And, but it's very heartwarming and makes you feel good about what you do. I think every, any marketing type person like me, commercial creative, whatever you want to call us, like any marketing person you know, has always, because we're empaths, we like secretly aspire to do this kind of work, even though most of our clients never let us. Right. And right. here I am now at a point and my colleagues are in the same boat. They're in some incredibly successful credentialed marketing colleagues that I work with who've all come here because we get to do projects like this. Um, so it's, it's really important to all of us, but it was an amazing experience. In, in your work roles, how do you deal with, with new fears and new challenges? Uh, I think, so, you have to bring your experience to it. Um, so, you know, anything new, it, actually, it's called being true to yourself, right? If someone throws you into a new situation and you're uncomfortable or fearful or you just there's some element of the unknown, like to me, if you can channel your authentic self, sounds very self-helpy, but if you can channel your, hmm. you know, what you really bring to the table, I, I think I've said it a few times down. It, I never intended to it to be a recurring theme in the conversation, but like this idea of what value can I add? Yeah. Right. If you, if you were, if you can really channel the value that you can bring and you bring it to that new challenge in an authentic way it just makes everything easier. Even if that maybe means you're having to bow out at certain aspects of it. Um, but it's a, I, I, this is going to sound wild, but like over time you start to also realize that everyone you're around is also living in a perpetually state of, perpetual state of fear as well right true nobody has these things figured out true and i and nowhere is that more evident than like in creative businesses to be honest in hollywood and mm. music yeah people can tell you oh i got a hit or someone can say this movie is going to be amazing and it flops so no one really really has it all figured out and if they did um you know they would probably be taking full advantage of that but they don't really have it figured out. And I think if you can, if you can approach these things just, you know, with what you know, your experience and what you believe to be right, and maybe even go find a collaborator or two to help you out, then I think you can, uh, then I think you can get through these things. Is that, is that how you got uh, started with the idea of creating music.com? Uh, the origin story for that one is, it's pretty, I like to say from the intuition of an, a highly prolific musician and that person is Pharrell. So he has like a, a way 
Egypt. I don't know. It's, it's, I'm so kind of detached from the making of music. I don't even know if this is a universal term, but like the idea of a playback session, you know, like when you're made some music and you want to play it for somebody, you have people come into the studio. Well, Pharrell has what I feel like he's like his way of doing a playback session. <clears throat> and when he does it, he almost always plays music for you cold. You walk in, you got to hear this new song, plays it loud as hell. Eardrums are busting at the seams. Right. You're listening to the song, but it's the first time you've ever heard it, right? Everyone's politely nodding their head. Yeah, yeah, this is great. This is great. This is great. And the song stops and he tells the story behind the song. And he'll say, I was traveling to Europe and this happened and that happened. I would turn on the news every morning. I was on this festival kind of tour, but every morning I would turn on the news and I'd see yet another unarmed African American man shot by the cops. And then I'm like, man, this is wild. This is wild. Then I'd wake up the next morning, it happens again. And then one of the guys on my team says, man, eventually someone's going to start shooting a cop. And then I woke up the next morning and that happened in Dallas. And I'm like, I can't be on the tour. I have to get home, fly home, go to the studio. I call Kendrick or I call Frank Ocean or whoever, and we write this song. And it's the song you're listening to now, plays it again. And inevitably, after hearing it the second time, the feedback is the same. It's, I, I really, really liked the song the first time as well. But after hearing the story behind it, I effing love it. And as someone who makes so much music, and, Bingo. and as you know, as a musician, it's like, how do I make more songs universally loved or just loved at all and not just disposable? And one of those ways is to add the context, the story to songs. And that's what music.com is. It's basically our attempt to get as many artists telling stories about their creations and always be one click away from listening to that, that song. But it goes a little bit deeper. Like we've, we've been experimenting with it for probably like a year and a half now. Right. We've never marketed it, never really aggressively promoted it. And just, just uh, for lack of a better word, experimented with it. It costs money to do that, so I feel bad saying we're just experimenting with it. Like we are attempting to start a business here, right? But the um, you know, it's evolved. Like I and you, you as someone who's used the platform, and I'm grateful for that. Like what we started to learn is that the people who are using it, the artists that are using it, we we consider brave, right? If you're a big artist that's done something, we've done stuff with Luke Bryan, we've done stuff with Pusha T, and a bunch of others, but you know, these big artists who've leaned into it and said, you know what, I'll work with you. I'm like, you're a brave artist, but you have legitimately no real reason to work with us right now. We're so small and experimental. And then if you're an indie artist or up and coming artist and you work with us and you're sharing why you do what you do, you're also a very brave person. So what we've, we've started to evolve our brand to say music.com exists to create, you know, strong, provocative relationships between brave artists like yourself who are willing to open up and share about their craft and why they do what they do and even culture at large and, and what motivates and inspires them with fans that we believe appreciate that bravery. So, so, so what we've done is we've... Oh, no, go ahead. So for our listeners that are listening, music.com is a site that you launched a few years ago. Can you give them kind of just a, a quick, like, how it works? Yeah. So um, it, it always starts with artists. It is nothing but a well of 
thousands of first-person accounts of artists creating music. Or, you know, we have we have written articles as well. We have a, a variety of different ways that an artist can use our platform. But at its core, it's artists speaking about their creation. Um, and the way the kind of secret sauce behind the scenes is that when when you, Larry, tell a story and upload it to music.com, an actual person watches that story and we index it. We index it like a librarian would index a library book. We're like, okay, this is a song about a breakup. This is a song about boyfriend, girlfriend. We like, who are the characters? What's the plot? Um, what are the, the big subject matters that continue to occur? The themes, uh, relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And we index your story based on what we hear you saying. We don't, we don't try to layer on any kind of editorial voice or anything else. But now once you pull that story, it's now in the music.com archive and it's now super searchable for breakups, for uh, relationships, for anything, whatever you said. And then you can watch your story, go listen to the song. You can watch your story and go look at five other stories. You can see that, oh, wow, Adele had a very similar story that's sitting right next to Larry B's story. And you can just almost use the site as therapy. And I see people use it as therapy all was, the time. Based I was, was going to say, man, you know, like the first time I got put onto it and actually uh, put uh, uploaded my, my my song to it, uh, talking into that camera, I didn't know like how emotional <laughs> I would get <laughs> and how it came out because it was just me shooting in front of my phone like, I know there are other videos there that are like well produced and everything. And I was like, you know what? There's no guideline as far as like how you have to do it. They just want to know the story. And it became one of those things after I did it, I was like, man, I have other stories that I could tell. And it is kind of a form of therapy because, you know, you're letting people know about, you know, something deeply personal to you and, and the story behind it. And as an artist, that's really, really hard to do sometimes as far as sharing, you know, information like that. Yep. Yeah, without a doubt. But here's why you do it. I've seen searches of people saying, uh, searching for all sorts of mental health related things, depression, anxiety, ADHD. I've seen my, one of my favorite ones just because it was, <laughs> it just caught me off guard for some reason. It was a search for feeling unprepared. Oh, wow. Can you imagine going to Spotify and doing a search for feeling unprepared? And not that I think we compete with Spotify on any level. Yeah. Um, but when you do that search, I don't know what the results are now, but for the longest time, it was Kendrick Lamar and Adele and a handful of you know indie artists that we've met at South by Southwest. But like you could watch stories of artists talk about how feeling unprepared on some level impacted the creation of these songs. You know, and to me, that is that's someone having a feeling and then watching someone else kind of overcome it and creating something out of that feeling, which should in itself hopefully be inspiring. I would hope. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had people upload stories from the backseat of their car who are homeless. Oh. And I'm like, oh, man, this is wild. This is wild. But they, they somehow are making music, which is a miracle and testament to the that's idea amazing. of making music in 2020. Yeah. But they're able to make music that they were ho literally homeless in the back of their car. It was like this really dark video. And I'm like, is that even a video? Or is this just, you know, 
a black screen and you could see the guy's profile every now and then move around. Um, but it's, it's definitely a labor of love. It is 1000% built out of that intuition I shared about Pharrell, but also um, my absolute undying passion for music and artists and why they do what they do and the stories behind it. Like it has my fingerprints all over it too. Probably the bad fingerprints. Those are the good ones, none of the bad ones. But we, um, we now have a studio in Los Angeles. We have, um, we're starting to advertise a little bit. We've done some collaborative billboards with artists um, and you know, things like that just to start driving awareness. But we're at, we're at a bit of a inflection point where we need to step it up and um, kind of go big or go home. <laughs> gotcha. Um, we're coming up to, you know, that uh, end around here of this uh, podcast, but I've got a few more questions for you. Um, one is, uh, why do you do what you do and what makes it worth for you? Uh, what, sorry, what was that last part? What makes it work? What makes it worth for me? What makes oh, it what, worth it okay. to you? Yeah. Um, I'm sure in some way, shape or form, it all can be like pinpointed back to like, upbringing <laughs> you know like there's something about my upbringing that led me to where i'm at now this is not an upbringing that had anything to do with you know huge amounts of money or anything like that it was just lots of love and lots of passion for you know creatives we weren't a big sports family so we didn't like care about that so much um i take that back my brother would probably argue that but like we just held and always held creatives in the highest regard um, and somewhere along the way, I felt a real sense of duty and passion and uh, sense of purpose in helping shine a light on creative people. Even though in some, back to that comment I made earlier, in some circles, I am one of the creatives, right? Or I'm considered one, but like, I've come to realize that like my role is, is maybe a little bit different. It's more about champing and creatives. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I am other was built, you know, in its DNA company I work for was created to shine a light on others of which mostly are creative. Um, music.com is a platform for, you know, to enable artists to, to have a light shined on them based on their deepest emotions. Right. Like you said, like you, it was way more emotional than you thought. Um, our festival was designed to shine a light on, all the best and brightest art, like it's not a tagline, but we say like we were, our festival is designed to highlight the best and brightest of Virginia beach while also bringing the best and brightest that we've encountered encountered around the world to Virginia beach, just to see what kind of magic happens. Um, even, you know, I'm, I'm working now with this group, um, of really, really talented creatives, uh, it's a small studio that goes by the name works. And these are some of the most incredible, prolific, influential young designers who probably created your favorite merch ever created some of your favorite album covers ever. Um, but they're completely just behind the scenes kind of guys doing incredible work. But my relationship with them is about shining a light on them. And to me, it's worth it just because I think when it's all said and done, you know, it's what did you do for other people? you know, much more than what did you do for yourself? So that's why I think it's, um, 
that's how I find work in it is that I love seeing other people be successful and even take that one degree further, even seeing people who you would never expect in a certain role to have success. You know, like one time I found this artist who was just like participating in a contest we did for Procter and Gamble. He was this young rapper kid. And I thought he was so brilliant in the way he wrote his lyrics that we then hired him to do a, write a commercial later. <laughs> and oh everyone thought this was going to work. And it worked beautifully. Wow. You know? And yeah. so not only is this shining a light on the, the creatives, the artists themselves, but even maybe helping those artists understand that they can do more than what they maybe are, think they're capable of. Um, so, man, so anyways, long-winded answers, but no, hopefully that, that was, that was perfect, man. Uh, you know, um, we here at uprising. We, you know, we call ourselves uprising because we are always looking for people on the tipping point of talent and, you know, people who are on the rise and not necessarily underground, but emerging rapidly. Um, Speaking on something like that, are there any up-and-coming artists or creatives that you think are headed somewhere exciting? Um, I'm going to assume you're speaking about Dallas-based, right? No, uh, it, could, it could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. Okay. Um, I'm, okay, so... Let's say if you had one, one in particular, who would that be? Oh my God. Okay. Easy. His name is Malik Emanuel and you have to look him up. <laughs> I think his IG handle is forever with an A at the end. Nice. Suave. Um, oh, nice. And he is 22 year old Virginia beach, Virginia. That's where he lives. He is a craftsman who hand makes sneakers that are beautiful and he'll like remake Air Jordan to remake shoes from scratch in his own colors and his own material. And they are spectacular. This is and cool. He is someone, when we created something in the water, it's called something in the water because there's, first of all, a lot of amazing creatives that come from here, an unusually long list of creatives. And even the athletes that come from here are quirky and different, like Alan Iverson, right? Like he's just different but amazing. Missy Elliott, right? Love it. Different but amazing. Timberland, Pharrell, Pusha T, Clips. Chris Brown is it's a like number a, of it's them. like a hall of fame. And yeah, but people say like if when Pharrell would go or any of them, push and see anyone would do an interview, they're like, if that journalist had done their homework, they would say, like, wow, you're from I see you're from Virginia Beach. There must be something in the water there because Mark Ruffalo's from Virginia Beach. Everyone's from Virginia Beach. Wow. It's a weird um thing. that people say there's something in the water. But I was like before I moved here. I was just like, yeah, these are all big famous people. When I got here, I realized, oh, no, no. Like, there is an entire amazingly creative class, um, of which Malik is a perfect example of. Young, completely, like, on another level from an aesthetic standpoint, from a capability standpoint. And they're, I hate to say it, they're kind of everywhere here. <laughs> we got a whole food. There's just so many talented, creative people. So... But you asked for one, and Malik gets it uh, today. And I wish he was from Dallas. I have a long list of people from Dallas who I love and admire. Um, and believe it or not, I actually use Artist Uprising to keep in, keep informed of most. So I'm not going to be able to tell you guys anything you don't you don't know already. Um, but what, look up Malik because he's very interesting. Well, 
I just want to tell you thank you once again for being a part of the podcast, man. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I know uh, it's been a minute since we've actually talked, but having this conversation here has been amazing. And I know our listeners are going to love it and they've learned a lot if they haven't already. Um, how can listeners connect with you if uh, they want to find you? Um, I'm on Instagram. Okay. Robbie Wells, R-O-B-B-Y-W-E-L-L-S. Perfect. And uh, I think that might be about That's it. That's probably I mean, the best thing. I mean, it's, it's, the least sexy. it's the best, it's the best way. It's the best way for everyone. And then I've got a quick fire question for you before we close. I just need, and no explanation needed, your top three George Michael songs. <laughs> okay. Ooh, good question. Without a doubt, hands down, number one, everything she wants. Yes. yes. From Wham. Yes. Uh, is spectacular. Um, then I would have to go with praying for time. Love it. And freedom. Actually, freedom and then paying for time. Praying for time. So, yeah, everything she wants, freedom and praying for time. Love it. Thank but you. They're all good. <laughs> Thanks for that they are man you. they are we we could have we the next week next podcast we do we'll just do it all about george michael i know you love him just as much as i do anyways man it's been a pleasure having you on um i appreciate uh you uh sharing your knowledge with us and uh, look forward to talking with you again soon man take care no thank you really do appreciate it you're a pro no <laughs> No, man, you're a pro, but uh, thank you, and uh, we'll be in touch soon, man. All right, man. Thank right. you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You okay. Made this far. <laughs> Take care. All right, bye-bye. We are the artists that make our cities one of a kind. We are the artists behind all the beauty, even in your home. From the architecture that defines the place where you rest to the space in between lined with fine art, handcrafted furniture, and vintage finds, there was an artist who gave you a priceless gift a piece of themselves. It is our mission to abolish the term starving artistry. This podcast is about interviewing those who have paved the way with their successes in the arts and entertainment industry. Tune in as they give other emerging artist listeners tips to success, as well as advice in the midst of a tipping point. This podcast series will also be a platform to discover together new emerging talent from all over the world. Stay tuned and explore the next Artist Uprising. Use hashtag Artist Uprising to join the movement.